it's apocalyptic prophecy time. Merry Christmas. Because <laughs> isn't that what everybody wants to read at the holidays about the end of the world and, you know, slaughter and destruction and all that good stuff? See, I do. <laughs> No, we are uh, continuing looking at the pictures. Like I said, if nobody else is having fun doing this, I am having fun doing this. Um, this section, though, fast forwarding away from Genesis into Daniel, this will make sense as we get into it as to why, though. Um, before we get there, though, there are a couple of warnings that I always give out whenever you're dealing with apocalyptic prophecy. And for those of you not sure, apocalyptic is just uh, apocalypse, just a term referring to the end of the world. You know, I mean, you understand that, but I always make sure I throw that in there. Again, contractually obligated, just like every time we read in the New Testament that someone went up to Jerusalem, I'm contractually obligated to tell you that Jerusalem is uphill from everything else. So there you go. Yeah, same idea in that. You do not, I repeat, do not ever, 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 ever read apocalyptic writing with that in one hand and your newspaper in the other. Unless you want to be the guy who wrote 88 reasons why Jesus will come back in 1988. And then had to write 89 reasons why Jesus will come back in 1989. I'm not kidding. Those are both books that happened. So, there you go. I can never remember what his name is. I just remember that he looks like G. Gordon Liddy. I don't know why, but that's, he looks like that, and I can see his face, and I can't remember what his name is. But anyway, so don't ever do that. If you do, you will miss your context. You will misapply, misunderstand. You understand apocalyptic prophecy in its context based on the pictures that it is drawing. So what kind of pictures might it be drawing? Because this is the little baseline foundation we're going to give you for understanding what we do today is we want to see the pictures as they're going in multiple directions. And the reason I say multiple directions is last week we talked about Joseph. So if you remember all of the lessons from Joseph, and if you weren't here last week, don't worry, we're going to cover a lot of them again because Danny in this passage is Joey from last week. Sound good? <laughs> we're on first name basis so we can talk. <laughs> so everything that Joseph was, Daniel stands in line in fulfillment of, and that matters because Daniel is pointing to the one who stands in ultimate fulfillment of the pictures that both he and Joseph and Abraham and Noah and David and Solomon and Samson and Abraham, are you catching a recurring theme here, are laying down. So that's what we're going to try to do and make sense of. So in order to do that, you have to have a little bit of background that is not in chapter 7. Um, we won't do this a ton, but Daniel is in exile in Babylon. He is part of the first round of exile. So if you know your history of Israel, there were three butt kickings by the Babylonians that ended up with people getting kicked out of Israel and taken away. The final one is 586. If you'd like to know what that looks like, read Jeremiah. Uh, read the book of Lamentations as Jeremiah describes the horror of that incident. That's 586. That's the final one. That's where the king and his family get drug off in chains. The temple gets destroyed. The palace is burned to the ground. Chaos chaos and catastrophe. It's a, it's a really bad day. If you, if you rewind from that in time, though, and you get to 597, you get the second exile. That's the one that Ezekiel is caught up in, where a lot of Israel is dispersed, but it is not catastrophically final. That is built off upon the first exile, which is in 605. That's the one where Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, again, I'm contractually obligated to do that. That is the one they are caught up in. That is the Babylonians doing what they do well, which is grabbing the cream of the crop of your people and trying to assimilate them into their culture so that they can understand how to govern your culture. What the Babylonians tried to do was create an empire based on a mutual understanding. We're the best because we beat you and conquered you, so that means you have to submit to us. But at the end of the day, we're not throwing away any of our cultures. We want to learn from the best of your defeated culture, fix what's broken, use what's good, and then move forward. The uh, the Romans will try to do this. The main reason behind this is you can't have a you can't have a multi-ethnic, multicultural empire. It doesn't work. You have to have a reason why people assimilate and come in. So the Assyrians tried to destroy your culture. The Babylonians just tried to assimilate just enough of it to where it was watered down and you would function. Now, I tell you all of that because Daniel, in the midst of his exile, turns out he's really the best of the best, and not just the best of the best um, educationally and intellectually, but religiously and in faithfulness to God. He's kind of taking everything seriously. And what you see in the Daniel story, stop me if you've heard this before in your Bible, is you see this person, because of the faithfulness to God and the blessings of God, raised up to high station 
only to be forgotten and forsaken by the pagan world and taken out of that high station, only to be elevated again, only to be thrown out, only to be elevated again, only to be thrown out. This is why I say Daniel is the new Joseph. Joseph forgotten, forsaken by his people, cast into the pit, thrown in prison, elevated to the level of king. What are you constantly seeing in Daniel for his accomplishment and his faithfulness? And he was second in the kingdom, and he's third in the kingdom, and he's running this and he's running that, only for the pagans to do what? Try to tear him down, try to cast him off. It's in the midst of all of this that you get chapter 7. And that is in chapter 7, so let's dive in. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay in the bed. So this is an actual time frame. Oh, I didn't fix that. I apologize. Um, Paul, if I could remember who I'm talking to. If you would right-click on that slide... And if it, when you right-click on that slide, it'll say Add Q. If you will add a clear all to that, that would really get that candle out of the way and make it so we're not all going blind the rest of the service, because I'm sure we'd appreciate that. <laughs> well, you try to figure that out, we'll, uh, we'll keep moving. I'd ask Cameron to hobble back there, but... <laughs> Exactly. So we actually have a time frame for this. This is 553 BC. So if you know your story of Daniel, that would be about 14 years. There we go. Thank you. And that should hold for the rest of them now. Um, that would be 14 years prior to the events of Daniel chapter 5. See, isn't that just so much easier to see and read? <laughs> Not like, oh, there's a candle there the rest of the morning. So I always like to point that out just because it puts it in perspective as to what's going on here. So this is in between some of Daniel's exaltations and casting downs. It's also one of the reasons why we can trust some of these prophecies. Your Bible doesn't do fairy tales. There's no like, and there was one day, you know, when Daniel was hanging out with some people in a place that, you know, he saw some stuff. No, you actually get a time frame for what's going on. So he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Now, this is the second very important note I'm going to give you and why you should never read this with a newspaper in your other hand. Catch a very important word there? Yeah, summary! Did Daniel give you every jot and tittle, every nook and cranny of this? And then there was a cloudy, overcast morning when the angel appeared. It's a summary, which means there's stuff in there that's very important. He gave you that. There's stuff that wasn't important. He didn't give you that. Don't go looking for the unimportant stuff. Pay attention to what's actually there. So verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So this is where you start getting into some interpretation. Four winds, this is really simple. That's all the wind. How many directions does the wind come from? Four. So if the four winds are coming, the wind is coming from everywhere. All right, you're Daniel in the Middle East. I wonder what the Great Sea could possibly be. Hmm, I wonder. It's the Mediterranean, people. It's the Great Sea. It's the one where humanity has been traveling along. At this point in history, in 553 BC, the Mediterranean has kind of been the navigable waterway of the world for about two millennia. It's kind of a big deal. So that's the Great Sea. That's what we're talking about. This is what's going on. Why is the wind stirring up the med? Because four, verse three, four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And before we get into them, this is your first connection point because this is when I talk about this section going backwards and forwards. When you see stuff that's repeated in your Bible, it's not there because God ran out of words and he was trying to fill it in like your middle school science paper. Like, remember when you did that and you, you, you it has to be two pages? And you, so you got a page and a half and then you started doing what? Can I add adjectives? <laughs> it was a very, very, see, that's like two more words. Look at that. It's that much longer. No, that's not what God is doing to the Old Testament. Those repeated things are there so that when you see them, you'll go, I've seen this before. This should be connecting me back to something. Again, the example that I've given is it's kind of like the Hansel and Gretling of your Old Testament. It's your breadcrumb trail so that you always know how to get back to where you started so that you never forget where you came from and you never forget the pathway that you're on. Now, beyond that, there are some places in your Bible where it is just, how do I put this? It's unnecessarily odd. And you look at that and go, so why? Well, easy. What do you remember really, really well? Like, do you remember the ordinary? No, you remember what? This is why people tell you that your Bible is just chock full of miracles. It's really not. 
It's really not. There's a handful of sections in your Bible where there's major outbreaks of miracles, and most of your Bible is just kind of life going on. And even the places where there's some of those outbreaks, the amount of time that's covered, like the the life of Abraham, like we cover 100 years of Abraham's life, and God talks to him like on six days. And we're like, well, Abraham and God were just like having a walkie-talkie, like, like it's 1974 in a convoy movie, and they're on the CB radio just talking to each other each and every day. Maybe, but the Bible gives you like a week out of a century. There's not that much going on. So when you see the extraordinary, it's meant to kind of stick out at you. So when you see those things again, you would do what? Hey. I've seen those guys. I know what they're about. I know what they're doing. And then you'd go back and you'd remember that and you'd pick up that breadcrumb and then you'd see the next breadcrumb and you'd pick up that breadcrumb. And sure enough, by the time you've done that, what have you done? You've retraced the whole trail and you're putting things in their perspective. So where, before we get to their descriptions, where have we seen critters like these great beasts before? Well, they've been used to describe God in places like Hosea 13. I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt and you were not to know and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be to them like a li- I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will wet, lie and wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear, robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. Which, by the way, in the chronology of things, Hosea would predate Daniel. So that's why I say it has been used. Um, God's reminding them of what when you see those animals? Of his faithfulness in the Exodus in Israel's what? Faithlessness and trusting in other gods rather than trusting in the God who has redeemed them. Um, If you fast forward, they're the same critters you'll see in places like Revelation 13. Why? Because when you get to Revelation, what is John doing? He's building on all that prophecy that's come before. He's connecting you back to the visions of Daniel, to the promises of Hosea. Why? Because when you see those things, you're connected back to the events of the Exodus, to the life of Israel, to the fulfillment of God redeeming his people. What is Revelation showing you? That God's people have come from where? Every tribe, tongue, and nation, they are in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. So all of those connections are meant to show you that these are the things that God has done. This is the work that God has done. This is his accomplishment. And as his people, this is where you stand. Because ultimately, and this is one of the places where we remember, so we look up. So as opposed to the Samaritan woman who wanted the water from the well, as opposed to the water that would actually save, as opposed to the Israelites in John 6 we talked about in Sunday school, who wanted their bellies full as opposed to having the fullness of eternal life. Where's your battle day in and day out? Because typically, where are all your concerns day in and day out? Yeah, they're, and they're down here. They're the problems you have going on at work or the problems you have going on in your family or the problems you have going on with this, that, and the other. Um, Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything everything to stand firm. I told you this before. I'll take a quick aside and remind you again. Something in my pocket. That's going to bug me the rest of the day now that I know it's there. This is why you have the trials and tribulations of life. So I've always given you your, your landmark verses, right? It's 1 Peter 1, it's James 1, it's Romans 5. What are they building up on the idea of? That you have difficulty in trials as you trust in Christ and follow after God in this world. And everybody goes, but why? I mean, and, and we ask why to the point that humanity has created an entire heretical strain of Christianity that tells you, well, you know, if you just believed enough and had enough faith, none of those bad things would happen to you. So that bad thing that's happening to you is because you don't have enough faith and you should be purging yourself of that lack of faith and trusting in God. Okay. Those people are evil. They will get their just desserts and I will rejoice over that because they deserve it. But sorry. That makes me a bad person sometimes, and I don't care. <laughs> Nothing bugs me more than when churches actually give people false teaching. Sorry, it bothers me. So your Bible warns you to prepare for tribulations, to prepare for trials, to prepare for struggles, to prepare for difficulties. Why? Because you are a fallen human being living in a fallen world. But, 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 yes, I know. 
but you have been saved and you are saved and you are being saved, which is why you are struggling. Because as you encounter these things, you recognize your sin, you recognize the difficulties, and you recognize the fallenness of this humanity. So now what? Now I remember the promises of God. Now I remember where the battle truly lies. It's not here. It's not with my neighbor. It's not with my work. It's not with anything that is here. It is with an eternal problem, an eternal problem going back to the garden that is redeemed in eternity by God and his kingdom. It is the accomplishment of Christ and the undoing of sin, the undoing of evil, and the undoing of me, and the building up of me rightly in righteousness. That's the hope. That's the goal. That's the struggle. Everything else is trying to pull me away from that. My goal is to persevere through the everything else so that in the midst of everything else, the hope that I have in eternity is secure and is a testimony to the lost and dying world around me. This is one of those reminders I give you. You're here. You're drawing breath. You testify to Christ. That's why you have different life stages. That's why you have different friends. That's why you have different jobs. That's why you have different places that you go and people that you meet because you get to testify to the goodness and glories of God in those places. If you had to rely on one person to do all of that, we would be doomed and we would get nothing done. Instead, you persevere in the midst of whatever your trials and struggles are to the glory of God so that you can demonstrate his power and provision then. That's part of what these connections are meant to show you in the practical term is that they show you and keep you focused in scripture on who God is and what he has done for his people. Now, with that said, who wants to read about the weird critters? Okay, verse four. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. I don't think you have to tell a bear to keep eating, do you? Not, not typically, but you know, what do I know? After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, as opposed to the other ones? Seriously? Anyway. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Now, warned you before, I'm going to give you a little reminder. Because these are types, because these are shadows, we're not going crazy trying to identify exactly where they are in history. And by the way, books have been written. Would you like a list of who these have been identified with? Um, some people say Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Antiochus, Caesar. Um, so one where this is the popes, one where this is Hitler, and then my personal favorite, one where one of these beasts is Reagan. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess if you're writing that book now, one would be Bush and one would be Obama or something. I do you see the dangers of this? Now, why do I not care? You're going to love this. I don't care because God doesn't care. <gasps> but he wrote it down. Yes, he did. And then he told you not to care so much. Why do I say this? All right, we're on verse 7. So, Paul, I'm going to make this complicated for you. I need you to skip to verse 15, okay? As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. To which we would all say, yep, I'm with you so far. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. I give Daniel a ton of credit here. Here you are having this weird vision, and then you see some dude standing off to the side. You'd be like, you know what? I'll bet he knows stuff. <laughs> I'd be like, you know what? No more Chinese takeout. But <laughs> Daniel goes and asks a question. These great beasts, verse 17 which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Oh, well, we should identify them, right? 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. You know what that just told me? Don't worry, because what are they going to do? Well, these kings are going to rule and reign until when? Until God says no. And then what happens? 
We win. Why? Because God's going to win. This is always your reminder about history. This is again why I tell you, your work in this world is to persevere in the midst of whatever kingdom you're a part of and whatever trial you're undergoing because that's the hope, the victory of Christ, the victory of God at the end of the age. He has proven the power. He has proven the accomplishment. This is why, again, those breadcrumbs laid down throughout your Bible to see the deliverance of God and the connecting to all of those promises. Just imagine being being able to write a story over the course of a few thousand years with multiple authors and getting the story right time and time again. That's what your Old Testament is laying down. And it's not just a story that's written down. It's a story that is lived out. I mean, can you get the people in traffic in front of you to do what you want? Yet God is getting humanity across time in nations to do what? What he wants, when he wants it, as it is needed. I think he's got this. Again, we don't always understand the power of God over his creation, and that's to our detriment because we, miss, we misunderstand that the power that was is the power that is, is the power that will be. That is why the call is to be faithful and to persevere in the midst of the world because it doesn't matter what the kingdom is. It doesn't matter what they think they're accomplishing. It doesn't matter what they're trying to do to us. It doesn't matter which, str- which struggle or trial we're undergoing. We have Christ who has been crucified for us who has redeemed us from sin, who has promised us a place in the kingdom, and we are secure in God. Therefore, this is fleeting. This is momentary. This is, as Paul calls it, a light affliction. And we will be redeemed and strengthened and prepared for eternity. That's the hope. That's the joy. That's the life that we live. This is what Jesus promised. So things like Matthew 24. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. I would never imagine that in this world, would you? I mean, come on. Just turn on the news. What's in it? Breaking news. Somebody else is going to bomb somebody else. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So what are we to do? Well, you rewind in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus has told you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. What do you do? There's wars and rumors of wars and plagues and pestilence and all these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Persevere in the midst of trials. Which, by the way, that's also the lesson you get at the end of the book in Revelation. We covered this on Wednesday um, a while back. Well, one of these years we'll cover this on a Sunday morning. I just got to figure out when's a good time to do that. Um, The letters to the seven churches, most of those churches are warned that the end is not going to be pretty. Most of those churches are told about trials and the struggles that are to come, and they're encouraged with what? The gospel of Christ. Their place in the kingdom and the fact that while they struggle and have difficulties here, they are promised a kingdom that is to come. It's again, what's our funeral verse? Go to a funeral. If you don't give the funeral home a Bible verse to put on the program, what are they sticking on the back of it? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's not, see, we read that and go, oh, see, that's a great funeral verse. And I'm not saying it's not a great funeral verse, but at the same time, um, dead people don't walk. Who's walking through the valley of shadow of death? You are. You are, right now. That's your world. What is the penalty for sin? Death. What is the world in which you live in when it comes to sin? Swimming in it. That walking to the valley of shadow of death is you. That's you here and now. What do you do in the meantime? You persevere. You trust because why? I will fear no evil. See, I don't know why, but too many funerals apparently before, you know, they switched over Bible translations, but it's always in my head in the old King Jimmy. (laughs) Why don't you fear? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Why? Because as the enemy comes, what's God going to (laughs) do? I mean, why does a shepherd carry a staff? It's because he's got a limp? No. When the wolf comes to take the sheep, what does he do? Whack! We're walking through the valley of shadow of death. Oh, look, the shepherd who leads me is right here, and he's got a big stick. Why do you think that is there? Whack! This is your hope. This is your perseverance. This is the John 10, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is where you stand, and this is, again, what these pictures are meant to draw you back to. That's why you don't freak out. I wonder which king this is. I wonder, what, I wonder if this is the kingdom. Is this the one that's going to churn us up? Is this the iron teeth? I don't know. I don't care. We have God. 
and God has promised, and God has delivered, and God will secure, and therefore we are happy. So, what does matter? Now, Paul, now we rewind to eight, okay? Sorry, I got, got, we have stage directions today. <laughs> Could be worse. It'd be like cue cards. That would be terrible, right? So this is after the four beasts have just shown up. So while I was contemplating the horns, so this is the fourth beast with the ten horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and, the, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Okay, that's just weird. Now, we're going to come back back to this guy in a minute because there's something more important going on than this. And you're like, but that is like the weirdest description of anything I've ever seen. What could possibly be more important than this? (laughs) God shows up. Uh, Verse nine, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seats. Okay. So I don't know why I have seats in my head. Sorry, took his seat. So the ancient of days, who is that? Who, I mean, what do you mean the ancient of days? The one from eternity. Yes, this is God. Why is he seated upon a throne? Because in the midst of these kingdoms thinking they're doing something, who's ruling and reigning? This is your warning from Psalm 2, right? Be careful, O kings. Do homage to the sun, lest his wrath be kindled, because God is the one who actually rules. His vesture was like white snow, because he's pure and white in demonstrating holiness and perfection. And by the way, that's like the good pretty snow, not the snow after it's fallen and people have driven by it in Rockford a dozen times for a week and a half and it's all piled up in gray on the side of the road. From the ex- That's not that snow. This is the pretty snow as it's falling. And they're like, oh, it's so white and clean. And they're filming like a, a shampoo commercial in it or something. That kind of snow. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Shampoo commercials are becoming so weird to me because they are going down the pathway of the perfume commercials, which Cameron and I found, we we found this blob. You ever wondered why perfume commercials are so weird? Like, it's this fragrance, and there's like some dude swinging in the ocean, and he climbs a mountain, and then they're like, Essence by whoever. There was a guy who wrote a blog post on it explaining it. He was an advertising executive. And it was a great explanation because it actually made sense and helped. Perfume commercials are weird because how do you describe in a visual commercial what it smells like? You can't. So what the, what the perfume commercials are trying to do are create an atmosphere that they think accompanies the scent of the perfume so that you will like the atmosphere or mood of the commercial and thereby, therefore you'll be drawn to the scent and then the scent, is, the scent is supposed to match the mood of the commercial. So when you see those weird perfume commercials, you go, that's what the smell should make me feel like and then decide whether or not you want to go try it. So that's, that's what they're trying to do. And because we're such a broken society that only deals in weird stories now, everybody is trying to do that and create a mood and a feeling in you. It's like, it's a candy bar. Just tell me what it tastes like. Don't tell me how I'm supposed to feel about it. Just tell me what it tastes like. You can do that. <laughs> but anyway, so that's what's going on here. Pure white, demonstrating perfection. Hair like pure wool. Um, fluffy and soft, demonstrating what? When does your hair get fluffy and soft? When you take a shower and you use the wonderful shampoo, right? No. <laughs> no, as you age and it turns white, demonstrating what? What are, what are the aged in scripture supposed to possess as an attribute? Wisdom. That's why you live long, so that you can be wise and instruct uh, future generations. Who is that wisdom based on? It's based upon God. That's why this wisdom is shown. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Well, that escalated quickly. Um, Just a little note. Typically, not every single time, but typically in your Old Testament, when you see fire as an imagery, something is getting cleansed or judged, okay? And a lot of times those are the same thing. So if we have a flaming throne with flaming wheels, well, one, why would your throne have wheels? Like, it's not a wheelchair here, people. God's not that old that he's, you know, got his old man with his lap, you know, lap blanket going on here. Why does the throne have wheels? So that its dominion will extend where? Everywhere, because it goes now, because the throne travels. So why would the wheels be flaming? Because as that throne travels and that dominion is extended, what will happen with that judgment? It will be everywhere that God is. Now, a river, um, verse 10, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Okay, two notes. I mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again just because we don't see it that often. 
Um, myriads upon myriads is your Bible's way of saying we stopped counting. It's too many. It's like when you were a kid and somebody was like, oh yeah, and then they just made up a number. Well, well I dare you to infinity. Yeah, that's myriads of myriads. So it's a lot. So that's what's going on there. Now we've got a sitting court and books being opened. That sounds an awful lot like judgment to me, doesn't it to you? Doesn't that look like a courtroom scene and something, something's about to get judged somewhere, right? Verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain, its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Ooh, it is, it is a judgment scene, Tweety. Uh, Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Okay. So again, you're seeing some fulfillment. If you are familiar with your book of Daniel, this is the vision from the the second chapter where the rock cut without hands comes out as God cuts his stone. And what happens to the stone? It grows so large that it crushes how many of the kingdoms of the earth? All of them, symbolizing what? That God's rule and dominion is everlasting and that God's rule and dominion will supersede humanities. Now, all of that for verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, what's our rule? You hear behold, pay attention, something important. With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now, two notes here. First, this is actually a very, very comforting picture here because everything else you've seen in this, um, this vision so far has been what? A little creepy, right? We got lions and leopards with wings and bears with a rack of ribs hanging out of its mouth and, you know, beasts with iron teeth. I mean, we got talking horns and all sorts of stuff. We've got flaming fire on chariot wheel thrones. I mean, there's a lot going on here. One like a son of man. What does he look like? Danger. He looks like me. (laughs) This guy looks normal. This is something comforting. This is something nice. This is something I can identify with. That's important. Where is he coming from? The clouds of heaven. Why is that important in this prophecy? Because remember, prophecy is meant to connect you with what's come before. That's the picture of the beast. But it's also meant to point you to things that are coming later. So things like, oh, I don't know, Acts chapter 1. After he had said these things, this is Jesus talking, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Great unintentional comedy in your Bible. Jesus goes up into the clouds, and all the disciples just stand there and stare, mouth open. And two angels show up, and nobody even notices. And I just know until the end of time that the angels, like, stood there, looked at the disciples, looked up at the sky, Looked at the disciples <laughs> and then did what? Men of Galilee! And all the disciples went, ah! <laughs> Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Why did the angel say something like that? Because the angel read Daniel chapter 7 and how does the Son of Man come? With the clouds of heaven one like the Son of Man, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's God, remember, and was presented before him. So we have the Son of Man coming in the clouds, standing before God. And to him, this is where Daniel is not really helpful, but the him is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Ah, This is where it gets fun. Okay. Coming around the mountain. That connects you to so many things going backwards and forward. So if you're going backwards, who has this kind of authority? God. Now, we've known that in the Bible for how long? Yeah, this goes all the way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The guy who made everything is the guy who's in charge of everything. So he has his dominion over all that he has made. And this is where all of your pictures come into fulfillment. So Adam is given the garden. He's given the sanctuary where God dwells. And he's told to go out and be fruitful and multiply and extend God's rule to the ends of the earth. And he fails. 
And then what do you see? You see God judging sin in the flood. And Noah is given the sanctuary of the ark. And he is placed upon the mountain where it is secure when the floods recede. And he is told to then do what as he leaves the ark? Go out and extend the dominion of God and be fruitful and multiply to what? To the ends of the earth. And humanity goes, oops, never mind. And you see this recurring theme throughout scripture. Then you see Abraham is plucked out of one of these nations. And he is told that he will be a blessing to the nations, that his offspring will be given a nation. And they are sent into Egypt and they are delivered by God and they are brought back as a reminder that God is a fulfiller of promises, that he is the one who will build the nation. The being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with God's dominion was Adam's job and he failed. It was Noah's job and he failed. It's supposed to be Israel's job. How? By having the nations join them as the people of God. And Israel does what? Fails. Because the lesson from Adam, the lesson from Noah, the lesson from Abraham, the lesson from Isaac, the lesson from Jacob, the lesson from Joseph, is that who has to accomplish this? God does. That humanity cannot accomplish this. So within the midst of that nation, you're given promises, aren't you? We're longing for a sacrifice. We're waiting for a prophet. We're waiting for a king. Because remember, we're in the exile of Daniel. It's been, oh, give or take 300 plus years since David was walking around. What was David promised? A king who will reign how? Forever. What is Daniel seeing? Ooh, that's the guy. That's that eternal king, the one who reigns forever. And he comes and has the authority of the ancient of days. He's the fulfillment of humanity's failures. He is the one who will succeed where people have failed. This is, again, the connection to things like Psalm 2, where the son is the one to whom they will do homage, that the Lord laughs at the scheming plans of humanity. You know, like all those beasts and the, and the horns that are mocking and boasting, that God mocks them. Why? Because he has placed his king upon the throne. This is the guy. He's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. To whom will God share his glory, or with whom will God share his glory? No one. What is this guy getting? Glory, which means he has to be who? He has to be God. He has to have dominion. Who has dominion? God has dominion, which means this man must be God. And that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him, which means that dominion is going to extend where? unto the ends of the earth. What you're seeing here in this Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the fulfillment of every work that was supposed to be done by the people of God in which they have failed. All the works that they have failed, this guy succeeds in. Now, something that we've covered, part of the sacrificial system, part of the reminder of these sacrifices day in and day out, year in and year out, is that you need a better sacrifice. Your hope is in the future salvation that God will bring, in the cleansing that God will accomplish. In order for that dominion to be extended, sin must be undone. The serpent and his head must be crushed. We must be changed. Sin must be cast out. Humanity must be reborn. That's the hope that is going away. And that's why this will be an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and a kingdom which cannot be destroyed because it is a kingdom built upon all the promises of God. And by the way, this is the fulfillment you see at the end of the book. So things like Revelation 7. I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around all and around the Lamb, and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. By the way, this is the other reason why we skipped ahead to verse 15 to point out the not caring about the beast, because this is the comfort. This is the hope. This is the place where you should rest if you are reading Daniel, which, by the way, if you're reading any apocalyptic literature, this is what you should be doing anyway. You should be resting and relaxing in this place, because you're being, what is being demonstrated? A victory by God. The hope realized. This is the longing. This is Israel's longing, is you're this little bitty nation, and you don't have enough people to defend it, and you have weird borders, and everybody and their uncle marches through whenever they feel like it. Why are we secure? Because God holds us. Why will the king remain? Because it is God who holds them. Why do the sacrifices have any effect? Because it is God who institutes them. Why does our life 
have any meaning because it is God who has empowered and who has strengthened us and who has granted us places in, our, in his kingdom. Now, you ever want to understand the brokenness of your world and the lies that we tell ourselves? Try to understand humanity apart from that. Find some hope. Find some joy. Find some peace. This is why we've invented made-up terms. You guys, you guys ever heard of SAD? Seasonal Affective Disorder? It's one of those made-up psychological problems because what happened? It got cold and dark like it does every year, and now I'm sad. You, you, you know sad doesn't usually hit people in December, right? You know what it hits them? January. Because you know what we did to, did to ourselves all the month of December? We lied. We pretended like we liked each other, and we pretended like things were good, and we pretended like there was something better than ourselves, and, and you know, we, we were all doing the it's a wonderful life thing, and, you know, everything was happy-go-lucky, happy go and, and, and then what happens after the lights come down, and it's just snow and cold? <laughs> because what have we been left with? No joy, no hope, no peace, because we've been left with what? Who do we avoid talking to the most? If you don't believe me, what's that thing in your pocket right now? <laughs> and when do you pull it out? When do you sit there and when, when do you doom scroll? Because you don't want to do what? The actual responsibility of life and the actual talking to yourself and dealing with who you are. We medicate with whatever we can find, with whatever we can do, because we don't want to deal with us, because we've disconnected us from God. Now, you want to cure that problem? You have to connect people back to God. How do you do that? You have to undo them, change hearts and minds. How do you do that? By preaching Christ and him crucified, because that's what connects to this hope, which is the only actual hope that exists. This is why it's a trite saying, but you know, it's like, you know, the reason for the season. If you don't actually have Christ, Christmas is just a lie. It's just this thing that you're going to build up in your imagination so that you can build this nice cliff that we do what at the end of the month? Fall off of. If you don't believe me, you know there's a, like, okay, you know that there's Thanksgiving is Thursday, right? What's Friday? Black Friday. What's Wednesday? No. You know there's actually a name for the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, right? One, it's one of the busiest days of the year for restaurants because nobody wants to cook and nobody wants to be at home because who's at their house? They've actually, <laughs> all the family they haven't talked to all year that they don't want to deal with, they've actually created a new thing. It's called Blackout Wednesday. Because what do people do when they have to deal with the family they don't want to deal with? They get drunk. They go out to restaurants, they get drunk, and they try to make themselves forget about all their problems. That's how we medicate in the world. Why? Am I, am I echoing? <laughs> Sorry. Why do we do this? Because we have no joy and no peace and comfort in the world. Why? Because as we live a life disconnected from Christ, we live a life disconnected from the promises, disconnected from the hope. The only cure for that is understanding what it is that Christ has actually accomplished. And this is, again, why it's so important that we see these markers and remember what we're actually celebrating when we celebrate the hopes of Christmas. Because this is, the, this is when you read Apocalypse and people go, well, I don't like reading this stuff because it's scary. It shouldn't be. It's Jesus winning. It's you as you stand with Jesus winning, overcoming all of the actual enemies, not the made-up ones we actually worry about, but the actual enemies, sin and the spiritual forces overcome, conquered in Christ. This is the hope of Revelation. And by the way, Christian, this is the actual only hope of Christmas, is a reminder that Christ has come to die. That God stepped foot into his creation to redeem his people, that they would have a place in his kingdom, that sin would be undone, that Satan would be defeated, that enemies that are true and real and spiritual forces would be conquered by him. That's why the rest of this becomes like the downhill sprint. Because what happens next? Verse 19. We skip ahead to 19 now. I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of brawn, in which it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were laid on its head, and the other horn which came up before which, before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking at that, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Not for long. Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints, and of the, of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. See, this is the reminder of who runs things. 
in who manages things. That this fearful, dreadful beast doesn't matter because I don't care how awful and evil he is. He's a dog on a leash and who holds the other end? God does. That's like one of my favorite little lines is, um, is Revelation 6. When the lamb broke the fifth seal and I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been was completed. And what's the end of that chapter? The kings of the earth hiding amongst the mountains and begging the mountains to fall on them and hide them because the wrath of the lamb had been unleashed. And that's always just such a comical picture to me because I always picture this sweet little cute lamb with a wound dying. I can't stand. (laughs) Because the lamb is who? It's God. It's God in flesh. Christ redeeming his people, raised for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of, his, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times, of, in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. That sounds pretty final to me. Now, if you, like, made me pick, like, from the list earlier that I gave you, like, if you made me pick, I'd go, it sounds an awful lot like Antiochus. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter who the king is, it doesn't matter what kingdom he thinks he's ruling over, who is the king? Christ. And he will reign how? So again, Christmas music. I do this every year, but I always remind you. This is the joy of that hallelujah chorus. Everybody always pays attention to the hallelujah chorus because it's the part you can hear and understand. And I pick on Cameron about this because she was a first soprano and actually sang, sang those parts you can't understand. But the, the really important part is what's going on in that whistle tone. What are they singing? King of kings forever and ever. Lord of lords forever and ever. And he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's the hope. That's the joy. It's, it's, it, Handel's Messiah is actually pulling from the entirety of your Bible. He's pulling from revelation to give you hope. You just didn't know it. <laughs> You're singing hallelujah and be like, no, no, that's the judgment. That's the conquering king who is here to reign. Um, verse 27. Then the sovereignty... The dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the peoples of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Yep. Because every power in this world serves who? God. And it will all be brought into subjection under his feet. Why? Because he was obedient to the will of the Father. Because he has redeemed a people, and that people will be secured by God. This is, again, that great doxology of Jude. Um, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. And by the way, this is the other reason why this is so, so good for joy for Advent. This is the joy you have, Christian. This is victory. This is what Christ has accomplished. His victory for who? For his people. That's you. And it's me as we stand in him. And what does it mean to stand in him? Well, that's that persevering. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Knowing that we are not to succumb to evil. Knowing that there is a pathway that leads through. Knowing that there is a good kingdom on the other side. And that's why we have a nice little conclusion here in verse 28. At this point, the revelation ended. Because what else do you need, man? (laughs) You've just been given a picture of the fulfillment of God for all eternity. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. See, I, I don't blame Daniel here. I don't. What has he seen? Like, I always joke that you know, like Noah, Noah planted a vineyard and made wine, like, first thing off the boat because he'd seen some things and he needed a minute. But, I mean, Daniel's not out of line here. Think through God showing up in your Bible. 
Like I always pick on the Israelites when God shows up in Mount Sinai, but Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord. And what does he do? (laughs) Get away, get away, get away, get away, get away. Ezekiel sees the throne of God come down. What does he do? Teensy, weensy, a little bit freaked out. Um, The disciples see the glory of God when he speaks to his creation in the calming of the storm. They're terrified. When he walks on the water, they're afraid. When they see the transfiguration, they're a little unnerved, I think would be the nice way to put it. Even John, seeing the resurrected Christ. Think about John. John saw all of that, the transfigured Christ shining in his glory with Moses and Elijah, Jesus doing all of those things, saw the resurrected Christ just show up in the locked room. He sees Jesus in his glory on the island of Patmos and does what? Hey, it's Jesus, you're back. You want to have some fish? Falls down like a dead man. Daniel has seen some things here. He has right to be a little off for a while. More importantly, though, he may keep it to himself. Thanks be to God he wrote it down. Because what has he given us? Hope, comfort. What has he seen? I mean, imagine this. Imagine getting this vision be like, God wins unequivocally. Everything that I'm worried about, all my fears. Because remember, if you're Daniel, you've been pulled from your home. You have been, you've had to learn a new language. You've served multiple different incarnations of the same empire. You've been up the ladder and down the ladder. You watched your friends get thrown into a fiery furnace. They should have been baked and they walked out. I mean, you, you've seen some things. And in the midst of that wondering, has our sin been too great? Has God's project been undone? Is there another plan? And the answer is what? No that the promises are good, that the hope is secure, that what we have seen, we have seen because God will accomplish. So things like Psalm 66. Come, see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. This is the hope. This is the reminder that the conquering king actually conquers. And that means, wait for it, that as the citizens of his kingdom, what side of the battle line do we actually sit on? Yeah, we sit victorious and the battle is actually over there. We are secure in his kingdom. Christian, no matter the trial, no matter the struggle, I encourage you to live with joy because you live victoriously. Why? Because that's what Christ has promised. He has promised promised a victory, and he has laid it down in Scripture in such a way that he is fulfilling every picture that he has drawn for himself. So where Adam has failed, Christ will succeed. Where Noah has failed, Christ will succeed. Where Joseph and Abraham and Jacob and Isaac failed, Christ will succeed. Where Moses fails, Christ succeeds. Where Israel failed, Christ succeeds. Where David and Solomon and Rehoboam and pick your king, where they have failed, Christ succeeds. Where the prophets could not instruct the people, it is Christ who explains God. Where Israel could not bring dominion, it is God's kingdom led by Christ, the eternal king that will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. Therefore, we rest because he has accomplished He has overcome, and we rejoice because we stand in a victorious nation. We stand in a victorious kingdom because we stand in Christ. Let's pray.